So good morning, guys. We are live and welcome to another edition of Environmental Social Justice. We have our special guest today, Mr. Tim O'Connor, who is with the Environmental Defense Fund. But before we get into Tim, I'm going to do a quick intro of Joy, our environmental consultant. Hello, Hello. Joy. Hello. Hi, how's everybody this morning? Very well. Thank you for asking. And Joel Vendette, our in-house realtor, but also knows more about renewable energy than I will probably ever know because he's studied this longer than I have. So good morning, Joel. <laughs> But um, so, Tim, you are senior director, senior attorney with the Environmental Defense Fund. Could you real quick tell people what the EDF does and why they're so important to what we're doing nowadays? Absolutely. Thank you, Wendy. And, and good morning to everybody. The Environmental Defense Fund is one of the nation's largest uh, environmental nonprofit organizations. In fact, we're an international organization of about 800 staff uh, across the across the globe. And what our mission is is to address some of the world's most vexing, complicated environmental problems using the power of partnerships, uh, uh, sound policy, law, and economics. Uh, we develop lasting solutions uh, to solve those problems that that hinder you know mankind's health and and well-being and protects the environment for future generations. Uh, we've been doing this in California for for. 40 years, and uh, we were uh, originally uh, started 50 years ago uh, last month. Oh, well, happy anniversary. That's fantastic. Yes, so 50 you. years in, we're a little slow to catching up with what EDF has been working on. And one of the things um, you wanted to talk about was transportation and going electric. And um, what do you see? I mean, let's just stick with California, and then we can go nationwide. But, you know, California's got a huge initiative to go electric. And we've discussed this on this webcast a hundred thousand times. What's EDF working on with respect to converting? So the effort, you know, to reduce pollution from the transportation sector is just so tremendously important, both for global climate change, but for local communities that are living right on the the edges of you know our highways and ports and all the industrial facilities that are out there, the truck attracting businesses. And so we have a two-part focus, uh, both on the light duty and heavy duty sector. Uh, in California, um, we're working on uh, developing lasting regulations and policies that help to transition. In particular, my focus is the medium and heavy duty truck sector, which is where you really get this, this joint pollution of diesel particulate and, and climate um, pollution. Uh, and so our approach is working with companies to uh, inspire them to commit to adopting and deploying uh, electric vehicles in their uh, in their distribution system, as well as, you know, on the policy side to make it easier for people to buy these. Uh, we're also doing this sort of laddering up at the federal level um, and in other states. California is part of a 15-state uh, collaborative uh, that's managed out of uh, the NESCOM group. That's the Northeastern States. Um, it's, a, it's a nonprofit that has brought together these states to develop model action plans for medium and heavy duty truck the transition and using this as a important leverage point to get the Biden administration to adopt standards at the EPA level and Congress to adopt uh, standards, policies and incentives to encourage and make it easier for uh, manufacturers and for the, the consumers of these vehicles to get electric trucks on the road. So I'm glad you brought up um, affordability. Um, we've had conversations in the past, primarily with personal vehicles, but with trucks. Right now, an electric vehicle is very expensive. 
average American cannot afford it. So the fact that you are working on bringing those costs down is fantastic. But another thing, two, two things I want to bring up. One is um, hydrogen seems to be picking up as an energy source. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because some people are totally against it and some people love it. So I'd love to hear your, your input. And two, my favorite topic, which I've beaten this dead horse, lithium. And how much do we actually really have and drilling in the Salton Sea? So let's start with hydrogen. How do you, you know, what's your views on hydrogen? So hydrogen is uh, obviously got to be a part of this mix, you know, going forward. In order to combat climate change, we need every tool in the toolbox. And to I agree. use a, a term that's been used many times, um, that means that technology uh, like hydrogen powered vehicles or um, hydrogen powered electricity is is going to be you know, a part of this mix. And there's so much money going into it and so much academic research. Um, it's yeah, I feel like I was, I was speaking with somebody actually from you know Chevron of all places uh, a couple of years there, ago, yeah. and they said, you know, we know how to solve climate change. It's just how much are we going to be willing to spend to do it? I mean, we know that if you produce hydrogen, you know, with renewable electricity, um, and if we build out more renewable electricity and infrastructure, we can supply zero carbon um, uh, energy to the transportation system, to the electricity system, and and you know, just today where the city of Los Angeles and just this week where they're talking about, you know, how to get to a hundred percent, you know, renewable or hundred percent clean energy system. We know we can get there. It is technically feasible. So, and hydrogen is a part of that long-term transition. Does it- So what is the funding for it? That's the key. Like there's, everybody I talk to, it's funding, 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 right? You can't get to without funding. And do you think that we're actually going to get some uh, funding from the federal government as well as the state government, uh, and especially in light of COVID, where we're able to hide behind, well, not hide behind, but we're able to push off some of these environmental uh, issues due to the fact that we're trying to fund COVID, uh, fund stimulus checks. Where are we going to get this money, Tim? I think there's two two things. One is the private sector certainly is going to be a, a main source of the funding. Uh, we know that hydrogen is going to be a part of the long-term uh, future of the natural gas industry because we can't simply deliver methane molecules, you know, that then leak into the air and meet our climate obligations. And so if the, if the trillion-dollar market in the U.S. that consists of all these natural gas utilities um, is going to continue to exist. They're going to be investing, and they already are investing in hydrogen. Second, the fossil fuel industry, we know in California, they are the main production uh, center of hydrogen right now. And so, like, that is a long-term pathway for them. Are we going to get the federal dollars that are needed? I think it remains to be seen about how much, sure. but there certainly will be some. The advanced technology, vehicle manufacturing, and other uh, clean energy production tax credits, we know those are going to be made available for hydrogen, um, just as they are going to be for electricity. And so how much the industry steps up to utilize those new mechanisms is going to be key. California has, of course, already started to free up some money for hydrogen stations. What we need to be doing, of course, is creating durable policy signals that ensure that investors have the long-term you know, returns that, that they need to be able to bank on to make those large-scale investments. Absolutely. I think, I think the thing that's interesting is that it's been over the past few years, it was actually fascinating to me to watch the automotive industry take the initiative 
over the federal government. I thought that, and to see all these manufacturers, whether it's Volkswagen or Audi now announced it, they're all going electric within the next like five to 10 years. Like that's the plan. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, and now there's talk of this, you know, $3 trillion, you know, infrastructure deal. So obviously it's going to get political. There's no way around it because everything in America gets political, but to see how much money can actually Mm -hmm. be brought into this because it's you know it's great to do all these things but you've got to like you were addressing i think a little bit before you have to look at the communities that are never get funding and how is it going to get to them you know and that's where we're i'm nervous we're going to start seeing the great inequities continue and it's Mm -hmm. if they don't if the government doesn't really step in to monitor how this goes we're not ever going to get on an even playing field and we're so far behind it anyway but that's the part which i get to yeah, and Joel, I mean, we can already see, you know, even some of California's California's well-designed programs, you know, like our HVIP program, the hybrid um, and zero-emission vehicle voucher incentive program, we're trying to get trucks off the road by giving them, you know, vouchers and buying down the purchase price. The main participants are the big companies that have the wherewithal and the ability to right. put together applications and to get, you know, zero-emission vehicles yep. on the road. What we need are the small, you know, uh, operators that locate sort of at the port that have the oldest trucks, you know, and they're the ones that are polluting the most. And we haven't been able to crack that nut. Um, and so that, and so we're actually uh, sponsoring a bill right now with Senator Connie Leva to relook at how California is, you know, putting together all these funding streams to get money out the door to support, you know, this transition because it's really um, unfortunate. Uh, it's, it's fortunate that we've got a lot of money out there, not enough to facilitate the transition, but it's in so many different pots. You have to, you have to like know the entire landscape or be a expensive professional consultant who many of these people can't, um, uh, hire, uh, to be able to access all those pots of money. So we need to be able to be um, refiguring out how to make this accessible to, uh, the average, um, average trucker. Yeah. And just even just educate them that it's there. Cause I That's imagine right. there's a lot of people who have no idea that these programs even exist. I mean, just a day-to-day person doesn't know all the programs that are out there for them Hopefully just to survive, so let alone a business. What's that? That's right. Hopefully shows like this will help people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the whole point of this is education. So pretty, you know, yeah. we have all this knowledge and I'm just trying to get it out to the public so people know what's out there, the programs out there, the, you know, what's changing and developing. And I love the fact that, you know, when people say that they love their gasoline powered car, I kind of get it, but on the flip side, I always say, what do you love about exhaust fumes? Mm. Because I don't know anybody that says, I love exhaust fumes. So this is just, yeah, I know. <laughs> no, but um, going on to the topic that we've we've had like five shows about this is lithium. <coughs> mm-hmm. Lithium is not widely found on the planet. It's a rare element. And we know the salt and, and people argue with me on this thing. There's plenty of it. Not for the amount of electric batteries that we are going to need in the very near future. That being said, I know that they're planning on mining the Salton Sea. And I have very mixed emotions about that. I've been to the Salton Sea a few times. Um, used to be this beautiful, wonder, wonderful resort place. It's just very salty. So it's not that great of a place, but people do live there. There are communities that live there. So Tim, if, you, if it's all possible, if you can share insight onto what the plans are for that mining operation, will it displace people? You know. Yeah. Well, I took a class uh, uh, to the Salton Sea. Uh, so I, I taught at Pitzer College, um, which is part of the Claremont Colleges. Uh, and it's fortunately only about an hour and a half drive to the Salton Sea. So it was a field trip. Took about 20 students there. And we met with 
Assemblymember Eduardo Garcia, uh, who um, has you know taken a leadership role in the Blue Ribbon Panel um, bill that was passed, and is really sort of spearheading a lot of these conversations to make sure that the communities in that area uh, are a part of the conversation and really a part of the solution. So what, of course, we know is that you know, battery production, battery demand is just going to continue to ramp up and that even yeah. though we have, you know, ability to provide uh, the resource needs today of raw materials, it's not necessarily what we're making today is going to be enough to support, you know, the battery ramp up in the future. And the salt and sea resource is globally relevant. Uh, it is of a size and significance, both in terms of ability to extract material, but the value of those materials um, is is of the type that it is hard we would be hard pressed to um, ignore it from an economic development standpoint, especially as it relates to the communities in this area that are some of the most economically depressed you know, in, Calif in California and really in the United States. That being said, um, the way that the salt and sea um, mining or extraction process would, uh, would go is different in many ways than in other places across the globe where in other places, you know, whether there is extraction of water that then goes into open uh, evaporation lagoons, this is, you know, paired with renewable energy development and reinjection of water, you know, into the subsurface and extraction of lithium at that point of utilization. So this is one of those places where you could envision a sustainable um, production system that doesn't have negative impacts on the environment, but also does create a revenue stream that provides more uh, money to the community and to environmental restorative efforts. Now, that being said, um, the resource curse, you know, whenever, you know, communities, you know, across time have found, you know, money invo involved in, you know, extracting resources, they tend to end up worse at the back end than they were at the front end. Um, that is just a, a uh, fact of, you know, history. And that cannot repeat itself because these communities are starting from a significant disadvantage. And so what we have seen and what we certainly support is making sure those communities are at the table. And that we're not just extracting resources and sending the money elsewhere, but the, the production and the, the transferring of that lithium that's actually extracted into manufacturing and other types of mechanisms that can deliver um, economic growth in these areas is probably got to be you know, mission one, two, and three, in addition to meeting global demand for lithium, because we can't just export um, these raw materials and expect uh, it to not uh, repeat the, the ills of the past. I think the Blue Ribbon Panel was designed to do that. Um, and I think that Eduardo Garcia is, is invested in that outcome. I'm not certain whether all the investors who are out there to make money have that same vision. And uh, but I think that if they see the only way that that resource actually can deliver the type of investment returns that they envision is if they have, um, you know, those communities at the table, then they'll see that this is part of the solution set. So it's interesting that you brought up the investors that may not be 100 um, percent invested, for lack of a better term, in providing for the community. Is there anything that can be done to encourage that and force that? regulate that and say, you know, if you're going to be extracting our minerals, you got to bring jobs and you got to bring people and you got to support the community. Well, I think that the, the Blue Room panel is the start of that process where if there are strong signals from, you know, them and from the legislators, you know, that are focused on this and also um, 
you know, one or two major investors that say we are going to go this way. And so uh, that will that will bring, I think, the body of the of the community around the, the folks that are looking to you know put in money here and to extract the resource. Uh, so I think it's there's a start in that direction and, you know, some leadership you know, also from the governor's office, you know, as well, so that people see the writing on the wall that this, you know, needs to be a part of the solution set. I don't know that we need laws that say, you know, this has to be sort of the, you know, the way that it goes. But if, but if um, the understanding is that uh, permits are not going to be issued, um, there's uh, other things that are um, going to stand as impediments, um, you'll start to see, I think, you know, this being written into these plans. You know, a good example of this is, you know, when the Energy Commission, I think, in California denied, uh, you know, some recent power plants, um, you know, due to the fact that there was energy storage available and that, they're, um, that they were located in a community. We didn't pass a law in California that said, hey, you're not gonna, you can't build more power plants, natural gas power plants, if there's, you know, other resources available. It became part of the decision-making process like instantaneously when some of those decisions happen. I think that, that there is a way to um, to achieve that goal without necessarily legislating it in. That's I get hesitant on that. I'll be honest with you. I actually, I actually get hesitant when I think about that because I just think about what happens with communities and say a big box store comes in. And right. there's the understanding that you're going to get the bonds and you're going to get all this kind of stuff. And then once that time frame runs out, they just leave and the money's gone. So it's kind of, you border on doing a general. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, I think to try to do something as kind of a gentleman's agreement often doesn't work when it comes to money and future. And so that's where I, I loved, I love the idea of putting the impediments in the way to say like, we're only going to do this if you agree to this, but what happens down the road if mm -hmm. that agreement just kind of goes, eh, we're just going to buy our way out of it. But Joel, that's if you were, of, I mean, I'm sure you followed or, or saw some of the, the legislative deliberations about even forming a blue ribbon panel, you know, and how long oh, it's that, all a mess. that took. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's just, that's why I'm like, there is no, there is no simple answer to anything because it's like, you want to go forward. You don't want to take the time and just watch everything happen. And, and it just happens at such a, such a snail's pace and the arguments get so diluted and out of control that it kind of leads you to do this other way but then that leaves the door open for it to kind of not go the way it needs it's a it's a vicious cycle it's it's mm -hmm. just this circular motion but like you were saying even for these communities it's about figuring out a way to break out of these cycles and this is one of them that needs to be broken out of in my opinion it's an important opinion though <laughs> thank you <laughs> i'll take that i'll take that no, so, but, Tim, I'm sorry, I cut you off. But, but Joel, as, it, as the investors um, that are looking to develop this resource, you know, plan mm -hmm. for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of, in, of you know, infrastructure and development, right. uh, do they, in, in your mind, um, only sort of make that money available if there's legislation or if, you know, they... If there is a, if they're at the table in the in the blue room panel and they're partnering with communities, um, right. it's it seems to me that if the idea is that the empowerment of the blue room panel is such that it can that it can set the policy of the state um, and that the communities are authentically at the table, you know, d does it does it necessarily require legislation to make that um, that make that point? Because we're not looking at you know, 10 years away before some of these decisions are made. We're looking in the next right. two to three because there's so much money, you know, available, I believe. 
And I guess the I guess the question is how where's the accountability down the road? And I think that that honestly is what it boils down to is how do you hold the companies accountable to just say like, look, you came to the table, this was the agreement. We got to stick to the it. Panel, though, isn't it? Isn't that this, this the purpose of the blue ribbon panel to make sure that people remain accountable? But I guess yeah, but like, what's that? What, what's the repercussions if they're not? And I said that's where I, it gets mm-hmm. for me, like because. I'm not a policymaker, but so like as just like a normal consumer, like I look at this and like, okay, great. You want to come in here and make this money. It's going to do wonderful. What happens down the road if you don't uphold your end of the deal? Right. Well, the people that get left holding the bag are the folks that live on the, on the border of the resource and that are, yeah. and that are impacted by, uh, you know, the extraction that, that doesn't, you know, meet environmental yeah. safeguards. And so I certainly agree with you that we cannot, um, allow for that to happen and that this accountability question you know is one that needs to be figured out before there's any um, right. authorizations for for additional extraction yeah and i'm not trying to be like i'm against any of this so please don't take it that way it's just trying to look at it from somebody mm-hmm. say you're in a neighborhood and you're like okay this is great you're yep. going to bring jobs into my neighborhood we're going to be getting a lot of money but i look at like the walmart right. store or not walmart but the big box store that opened and then all of a sudden they left, and now it's just like a blighted building sitting there that's crumbling, and we gave them money for Well, what we do know, and I know that we're sort of running up towards the end, is that this resource in California um, and others like it, um, in you know, when we look at domestic battery production, when you look at domestic job generation, um, and you look at manufacturing facilities, these are exactly the types of things that the federal government is looking at and the Biden administration is looking at to substantiate sort of this push towards um, towards uh, you know, a transition of our transportation sector. And, you know, we can we can sort of take this example of facility and look at, you know, Spartanburg um, or we can look at any of the other major cities in the U.S. that are sort of in economic decline, Detroit and, and others, you know, that where we need these jobs and where this is like a calling card for us to be moving forward. And so I think if we if we don't you know, take every opportunity like this to really start developing um, a domestic infrastructure on all parts of the supply chain, we're really missing out and we're leaving it to other nations that don't have the same kind of investment in environmental protection as we do. We certainly don't want to be exporting environmental harms as we improve our you know, emissions from our, vesil- from our vehicles. Very true. Thank you for bringing up the fact that other countries do not have the same incentives that we do to remain environmentally conscious. And um, unfortunately, we have reached 20 minutes and there is um, an event that I know that Tim has to run to very quickly. In fact, he's a little late. So thank you so much for your time. This was a very engaging conversation. Love talking about lithium, love talking about electric vehicles and Salton Sea is a favorite place of mine. So on that, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and Joy and Joel, I'll let you close out. Thanks a lot, Tim. I'll be working with you a lot in the near future. I'll probably shoot you an email just to let you know why. And we'll announce it on the show next week. Fantastic. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, take care, everybody, for this week. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Tim. That was a great conversation. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much.